catch up on all the live shows right here on africatechradio.com. Welcome to Tony's Tech Side, another episode of Tony's Tech Side, but this is a special one because it is on COP28 and the things that have shaped the conversations around climate change and its discussions on the continent in 2023. Before COP28, or COP by the way is Conference of Parties 28, and I have you know a couple of episodes on COP27 and the COPs before and also on climate change and other areas that concerns climate change previous episodes so before COP28 in 2023 it never really felt like Africa really like crystallized its internal consultations in a coordinated manner I may be wrong maybe I, I hadn't noticed but well I stand to be corrected on the road to COP28 stakeholders in Africa held six you know perspectives to climate change discussions from renewable energy to climate adaptation climate finance loss and damage fund energy justice and climate change research now with COP28 ending in Dubai in December 2023 how did we fare how have we fared were we able to make any progress with our plans well, notice that Africa held consultations and meetings which somehow crystallized into a forum or a conference which held in Nairobi earlier in 2023, just before the conference of parties happened in Dubai from November to December. I have two wonderful guests with me. Yes. First is Udirilwe Selomane and second is Ulumide Idoum. Udirilwe is South African and Ulumide is Nigerian. They would spend uh, about a few seconds or minutes to tell us a bit about themselves and then we would go straight up into the conversation. Let's start with Ulumide and then Udirilwe. Yeah, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to part of this conversation. Uh, my name is Ulumide Dou. I'm from Nigeria. I'm the uh, Executive Director for International Climate Change Development Initiative an organization that is trying to build a climate smart generation across Africa. And we are just yet to, you know, shift the narrative and change the narrative of people about the conversation on climate change and also to bridge the gap between the government and the local communities. So that is a little bit uh, about me and what I do and my organization. Thank you very much. Beautiful. Thank you, Olumide and Udi. Thanks, Anthony, for inviting me. My name is Udi Resolumani. I work as a senior lecturer at the University of Pretoria, and I'm also a coordinating lead author for the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. So this is a platform that discusses biodiversity in the same way that IPCC discusses climate change. Thank you. Okay, interesting. Now, if we start with the trends we noticed that shaped climate change discussions in 2023, what would you say you noticed? Udiriwe and Olumide. Udi first. Yeah, so I think the, the conversation is, when you when you think globally, it's, it's quite different on where, what, what the priorities are. And mm. if you look at, you know, continents uh, like ours, Africa, there's a... 
the strong winds of shifts, I think, in some corners where the continent is trying to recast itself from a receiver of uh, finances and aid, but also to position itself as a full participant that brings solutions to the table as well. And there has been uh, some interesting developments in this regard, of course. But one of the, I suppose, the key issues that, that is quite important here for, for us as a continent has been climate adaptation. And obviously the discussions at COP this year were not very satisfactory when it comes to adaptation, but that is one one key area that is critical for Africa as a continent, I would say. Uh, okay. Otomidi, what do you think? What are your own thoughts around what shapes the conversations we're having this year, 2023? Yeah, thank you. I think what Udiri said is just uh, what uh, I think because you are in Africa, and for me, I think one of the biggest things that I quickly want to share is when you look at the AGN, what is the voices of the AGN concerning Africa? And looking at adaptation as a strong message for Africa also shows to us that we also need much more financial support to help vulnerable people to adapt to the impact of climate breakdown. So it's very key that uh, the issue of adaptation have been a very big conversation more than the issue of mitigation. And just uh, because of what African is clamoring for, uh, looking at the Indian statement, we also look at the area of how uh, the clear priority that COP28 has actually brings to the people of Africa. You know, we are looking at an ambitious decision that uh, under the work program on just transition pathways that operationalize, you know, equating the pathway for adaptation, finance, and mitigation. And if you look at back to the Paris Agreement, it's convincing that the continent, unique needs and the, uh, the circumstances that we see now is that adaptation is very strong need for Africa. And this issue, we, we need to actually ensure uh, uh, to make sure that this ensure a fair and equitable shift to a low carbon and climate resilience development. So I think that's one of the focus area that's shaping the conversation. And when we are going deeper, maybe we're going to be talking more about uh, what uh, those tests looks like during the outcome of COP28. Thank you. Mm. Yes, you were just about to get to that. Now, in terms of the major things that we've, we're focusing on, especially from the Nairobi documents, the documents that we crystallize in Nairobi, do you think we had a fair outing and were the ambitions we had, were they at any point in time, based on the documents, you know, from COP28, did we make a headway? Ulumide. Yeah, th thank you very much. I, I would say that we push not, if I put it on the scale of 1 to 10, I would say like 4 over 10. Why? Because uh. I think the preparation from African Climate Week uh, was not really, maybe it did not really get some African countries okay. ready for COP28. Majorly because some of them did not actually, you know, take part in the, you know, in the aggregation and decision that was actually, you know, uh, uh, made. If you look at the issue of enhancing mitigation ambition and even implementation, implementation by developed countries you know developed countries do they actually scale up their mitigation action and provide necessary support to developing countries to contribute their fair share of climate action do they do that were they able to enhance supports that provide developing countries to implement 
our ambition national summit contribution in the context of sustainable development and poverty eradication so the african climate week is supposed to have been a, a bedrock that break you know the need of african continent and let me quickly also share that if you look at the preparation for cop 28 we have two different meetings at the same time the african climate summit and the african climate week huh. which the, the messaging was actually you know i would not say contradict each other but we're trying to establish something and the agn was also you know their power is supposed to go along with countries negotiation so you know we, we develop countries do they even provide financing and facilitate investment that is needed for just transition pathway so there are a lot of messaging or a lot of uh, questions because when you see the outcome of COP28, you're able to understand that uh, the AG and the African group of negotiators actually need to look at uh, the need for different countries critically before coming up with a decision on behalf of so many uh, uh, foreign people across Africa. But I would say that uh, we've gotten a certain fair share for this conference because they've made the commitment but the implementation is now the problem thank you mm. Udi, do you feel the same like the same way all the media feels yeah i think uh, all the really articulated this very well uh so so rather than try to make the same point which i think he, he covered much better than i can is to maybe raise uh, another issue that's related to this which is that the the agreements that are being taken in this sort of big meetings, these global meetings, in the regional ones, are speaking at the level that is, if I can say, somewhat uh, unenforceable. And what's really happening on the ground, as we've seen with the, um, I think one one really good example that concerns me, and of course not the only one, it's the buying up of land the size of the size of the UK in Africa over the last few months by a company called Blue Carbon. And this is a concern for me because in the spirit of climate solutions, land has been grabbed and taken away from, from the continent. And so while those discussions are happening at that level and they're, they're moving a little very slowly, I think I'm going um, to quite well, the four out of 10 effort there. The, the actions that are happening on the ground are in some ways creating a different kind of problem in my view of uh, taking land away in sort of what, what, what other people have called land grabs. So um, I worry about what does negotiations match up with uh, with the actions on the ground. Sorry, that doesn't really quite answer your question. Just that it's on a different so, added, so every day, even those that decide or decided before now, you know, do want to see the impacts of climate change draw, you know, closer and closer and closer. Every day, everyone seems to be like their eyes seems to be much more open and it seems like, oh, wow, yes, actually. Oh, yes. And the amount of funding that would be needed or required based on, you know, research that's been done um, would be over two trillion dollars climate financing how did we fare this year and what more needs to be done udi i think one telling example is i suppose is the the the, the loss and damage fund that was pledged mm -hmm. for uh, for that which is a i think it's about 400 million dollars yeah it's it's a step in the right direction but it's uh i think it's relatively small compared to what would uh possibly be needed but of course the, the recognition that 
This is a thing that money needs to be put next to. It's a step in the right direction. Uh, but by no means anyone you know what's needed. In the same way, I think the, the, the conversation, think one, one really big outcome around financing is that there's a lot of readiness for financing of mitigation options or strategies and clearly very little about financing on, on time and uh, climate adaptation side. So that also tells you priorities about where the money comes from and what, what it's trying to, to fulfill. So I think unless there is money available for adaptation itself, yeah, it's going to be very difficult to make the case that we have uh, succeeded in, in raising the required finance. And maybe to give an analysis example, it's a, a specific case of South Africa here where, where I think about $11 billion has been pledged for the energy transition uh, in the country. Uh, well, it's actually not $11 billion. So I'm confusing my numbers. It's $11 billion, $11 billion rand, probably $11 billion rand. And what's needed out of that, I think it might be something like eight times that one that's pledged. So that gives you an idea that, of course, not all of this will be solved at once. So we need to start somewhere with, with this money. The question is whether subsequent fi financing would be able to be raised to continue this project of transitioning out of fossil fuels, for example. Okay. Um, South Africa, um, close to 100, uh, I think about $100 billion. But we've, I think we've literally just... Uh, almost 10 billion or so that's what has been gotten so if we look at financing from where the money is coming from and the way we're trying to raise the money should we be thinking differently i say this because we hear things like uh, carbon credits and we hear a lot of announcements but they're not exactly direct and i was speaking to someone um you know an african who stays in uh, switzerland climate activist and he said something about oh before you know these monies actually get to you know do the good they're supposed to do a lot of it goes you know uh, through consultancy fees and you know and whatnot what are your thoughts around how we're raising these monies or these funding and what would you suggest um would you this is a follow-up and then olumide i want you to also take this up right yeah that's a really good question I, and i and i think the uh, I was just in discussion recently with, with, with someone who works in carbon markets specifically. One of the key issues there is that obviously the, 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 you can think about, in a way, to simplify the story, three types of solutions, if we call them that, or, or let's say approaches. One is focusing on economically viable solutions mm -hmm. or, or approaches. In this case, in this case, somebody pay, pays for something, invests in a renewable energy project, but then they can end their, their, their money back, so to speak. So mm -hmm. that story. And then you have a you have you have another set of you have another set of, of of approaches that are focusing on sort of projects that would need some intervention in the form of subsidies to get them going. So if you think about some initial investment by government or, or, or public sector that first first invest in the initial R and D to get the, the product or approach viable. So you have a, you have a set of of of, uh, of sort of projects or interventions like that that are tricky to find because this is this is where we start to look outside of the continent outside of, outside of the, the, the most of the countries that don't have the finances to do so. Um, and then a third a third a third one is one that there, there's projects or, or interventions that are not economically viable. They 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 simply don't have. It's actually not about kind of viability, but it's about you can't put a price on them and think about 
a protected areas is an example of of, of the, type, the kind of project we're talking about. Uh-huh. So if we're trying to increase carbon sinks, and let's say using land or our full sectors, most of these lands, most of these ecosystems you need to be uh, looking at are not something you're going to sell afterwards. So you're, you're, the, the, the sole purpose of investing money in those is specifically to keep the carbon on the ground. So if you think about these three things, then you can think about what sort of incentives do you have for different uh, investor types to, to be involved. At the moment, I'd say it's very cumbersome to get people to the process of verifying whether the, an, an intervention has improved carbon stocks to finally make the case for someone to end up investing on. That process is very, very difficult at the moment. It needs to be simplified a lot more for, for the carbon credits uh, crediting system which of course is its own issues, but it's a potential market that's developing. But the, the biggest issue, in my view, is the, is the cumbersomeness of, of developing a project and eventually getting it on the, on the, on the carbon markets. Huh. Okay, so this takes me to research, uh, but let's just, uh, yeah, let's slow down a bit. Olumide, what do you think about this? Ah, yes, I've been waiting to say, like, some key <laughs> Okay. Yeah, thank you very much for that accordion. For me, uh, I don't like uh, talking too much about this issue of finance, but let me quickly take you back. You know, you remember very well that the, the crucial uh, means of implementation of climate ambition for developed nations should be substantial financial what, commitment. And this needs to address the outstanding issue of the promise. I, I'm very sure we know about the promise of the 100 billion per year since 2020 Uh and we need to also remember that is there any effort that have been met concerning these financial needs now we are talking about usd in trillion it was in billion before can all developed countries scale up access to climate finance for adaptation genuinely to deliver not only african countries but developing countries True grants, and if, if you look at it very, must it be what must we be looking at new funding when the one promise was not met or meet? So it's it's something that is critical for us to understand. Uh, even though we welcome the pledge and the commitment of climate finance uh, uh, to the Green Climate Fund, to Adaptation Fund, even the less developed countries fund, we are also with this. Including conference, we also talk about the special climate fund. So, this commitment for far short, you know, of the expected scales of fund that we are looking for, none of them have actually met some of the needs of the issue of climate uh, uh, finance mechanisms, which also needs. You mentioned something about carbon markets. Mm. We need to caution against this promotion of carbon markets because. For climate finance and mitigation action has been captured under the pillar that we talk about, uh, about delivering high integrity carbon markets. To me, as for African continent, is still a false solution. And they make a declaration on global climate finance framework. So we just need to understand that this climate finance is looking at the issue of loss and damage. is looking at the issue of adaptation. Is also focusing on mitigation. So how do we keep promises that meet implementation so that we don't keep saying the same thing every Somebody mentioned it. Can we just stop going to COP? Uh-huh. Can we just stop COP every five, five years? 
so that we don't waste resources in going to the same conference and coming up with one line agenda to add to the last year you know so it is very very important that the issue of climate finance is key because the the, the aim of going for COP or for the agreement or for or, or for negotiation is for them to reduce their emission even if you look at it very well under the fossil fuel issue that all of us we are shouting that oh now we've met this the first time this is the first time in 10 decades mm -hmm. of climate negotiation that the word fossil fuel have been made get uh -huh. into the cop trend cop outcome now we are we are finally naming the the we call it the elephant in the room uh -huh. because fossil fuel is the elephant in the conversation so are we trying to be genuine with this statement because the bottom line is where do we get money now to get the alternative so how do we look at the future cops that we only turn us to talk about the issue of reducing the dirty energy as well so there's a lot of you know action there's a lot of points that we need to be very cautious about when it comes to the issue of dollar from billion to trillion thank you can i say something quickly uh, Anthony? yeah sure sure it's a conversation yeah yeah so so olivia i like that you 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 have a a very strong feeling about finance and, and, and how it should go. So I just wanted to say a couple of things about... So, so one of the things I want to say is that most of the... Again, using the example of the of the, of the Justice in South Africa pledges, I think about 75% of the money pledged is loans. So very little of it is grants. So, so, and I don't think that proportion changing too much, in, in my view. I know it should, but... But, but so realistically, so I have a... Realistically, so so I have a, in some ways I think the public sector pledges have some restrictions in terms of how they are uh, operating at the moment, and also they have some limitations in terms of how much they can grow. So I think there's a real case for private sector financing to come into play, and and we should be exploring. And I know there's a lot of controversies around carbon markets, but we should be exploring what are the alternative ways this can work, uh, given what we know about our continent. What, what sort of experiments can we put on the ground to see? And and most important to think about, is there an opportunity to use mitigation financing to, to fund adaptation? I don't know how that works in practice yet, but I think these are some of the questions we should be innovating around in terms of given the current flows of funding into the continent and the conditions that come attached to it, what are the other ways we should be thinking about financing? And what are some of the innovative ways we could uh, inform the world about how that financing could look like here, which is in some ways it could be through market instruments, but also through uh, public instruments as well. Thanks. Uh, okay. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Well, let me did any 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 counter thoughts? Any 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 comments? Yeah, okay. yeah. I think uh, that was very uh, articulate. Thank you so much. Okay. Now let's look at uh, Olumide mentioned alternatives, and we know that we have like abundant hydro, solar, wind, you know, and other bioenergy resources for us to rely on and to be reliant mainly on fossil fuels. Renewable energy, just about eighteen percent or so of you know the energy mix on the continent. What are your thoughts around? Oh, this you know from renewable energy. Of course, you talk about just transition. Uh, you know, and all of that. What are your thoughts about how 
we're developing innovative solutions internally, like locally, um, to help push us faster, uh, you know, on the transition. Udi and Olumide. Yeah, I fully agree with you that the resources are plentiful, renewable energy resources. Um, it's it's a tricky one here, I think, because without having done the research into this particular topic, uh, I can't speak more confidently than uh, half speculation, I suppose, which is that the, in some ways there's this air of hope that, you know, we will discover again, we'll discover this, we'll discover that. This like waiting of fossil fuels to be discovered, which I think in some ways are uh, tainting how we could be thinking about innovation in, in, in other uh, in other alternative sources. Over time, we know that renewable energy are much, much cheaper. As far as I'm aware, we're not doing enough research, R&D, in terms of exploring how we could develop Africa, basically Africa-developed solutions for renewable energy. The technology is there, can be learned from, can be developed, can be manufactured. And of course, you know, you can make a case about the lack of capital to get those going. Besides capital, I think that in my view, there doesn't seem to be enough focus of this as a as a real solution. But I, but like I said, this is based on uh, very little information that I wouldn't I would take this what I'm saying with a bit of grain of salt. And I and I hope uh, Olumide can provide a, a much more educated answer to your question. Yes. Before Olumide comments, uh, how much more do we need to do in the area of research? Because uh, I I don't. You're in the space, right? How much data is available? How much research is available? Um, not just about the problem, um, but maybe possible ways to go around thinking about the problem and the solutions. Udi. So some of the common ways that I suppose one of the one of the, the early criticisms was always that renewable energy are expensive, but of course over time they've gotten much much cheaper than uh, fossil fuels. And the other issue was the reliance on imported technology which we mm. for which we don't have technical ability to maintain mm. um, so this has been a quite a critical issue that once you have this technology imported and set up you need a lot of maintenance to keep it going uh-huh. who does the maintenance and so this is a critical issue i think the training in that sense are about technicians who can maintain that kind of technology uh, because all technology needs to be maintained and i think we, we we know very well from deteriorating infrastructure on the continent that maintenance is a critical aspect which if you neglect you end up with the uh, uh, infrastructure that's falling apart so i think that's one 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 other area of how are we training people to be able to embrace this on the one side and how well are we studying this existing technologies in a way that people on the content know about them, know how to develop them, and ultimately also know how to to maintain them. Uh, and and since you're you you're into uh, research, which areas should we be focusing more attention on uh, mitigation, and where should we put in our money in research or efforts in research on the continent? And in some strange way, you could say forget mitigation. Okay. Not, not not forget mitigation per se, but uh, and I'll explain what I mean by this. What I mean is, as a continent, there's a massive need for energy. So even if you forget mm-hmm. about even if you forget about whether you're doing it for climate reasons, you're doing it for energy provision. Uh, that could be your motivation. We need to be providing energy to millions and millions of people on the continent. True. Uh, and if you're going to do it now, why not use renewable energy? Basically. So so that's that's. Uh, 
I, th- I think there's been a research, uh, I don't know how extensive it is, on the areas of potential renewable energy that pro- offers the most. So so we should be researching those those potential areas on whether they're suitable for what, what kind of technology and how well can we uh, develop the storage capacities to... Because I think one of the criticisms that people all talk about is the space flow idea that how do you maintain electricity flow when the sources of energy are not able to provide it at that moment. So you need to be able to store that uh, when, when, for example, your, your wind turbines are not running. And so I think it, an exploration into those kinds of questions about we don't know technology works, we don't know how to store it in a in a useful way yet. So can we can we research that? Can we can we can we get people working on that to just stuff out? That's uh, an example. Oh, okay. Olumide, would you want to comment on uh, one of the thoughts uh, that have been shared already by Udi? Yeah. yeah. Let me say the last uh, three or four points of Udi was actually something that where you said, how much more do we need? Is it mitigation? For me, Africa needs a lot of adaptation. And just so we know that we are not saying that we don't need mitigation, but technology-wise, are we ready? Uh-huh. Is the opportunities are there, but getting it done or putting it in perspective of how do we drive this innovation lies within Africa and exist. So the issue of moving from fossil fuel to renewables is a conversation of how are we ready to follow up through this transition. Let me give you an instance. We are clamoring, we are calling, we call it special needs, we call it circumstances for Africa. How do we as an African actually, you know, maximize the potential of our natural resources that can give us the resources that we need, even though we want the polluters to pay? So it is important we look at adaptation as one of our strong way. We're talking about just transition. How much have we recognized that just transition are for all countries and for us to recognize the significant needs and special circumstances of developing countries, country parties? Because if all parties are not speaking in one voice, I don't know that maybe if I say it again, that there's this conversation online that Zambia is saying something else. And they are the idea. African and there's another people saying something else. How do you think? Africans need to come together and think about this issue of renewable energy as an alternative. Because if you come to Nigeria as an example, that our alternative is gas. Mm. How much have we even invested in that gas? How much in the country, how many of our people in the vulnerable communities have access to that? You know, we need to decide, you know, the kind of programs, you know, that can help our just transition pathways to achieving the goals of the Paris Agreement. Yeah, I'm sure you've read the Article 2, Paragraph 1. You know, Paragraph 1, Article 2, Paragraph 2. All this paragraph on this text speaks on just and equitable transition, which encompasses pathways that include energy, social economy, workforce, and other dimensions, all of which must be based on the nationally defined development priorities. So, if we are talking as a country and we are lo- or as a continent, and we are looking at renewables, we are moving from fossil fuel to renewable. How much are we ready? How much do we follow 
how much do we make sure that there are international cooperation as an enabler you know of just transition pathway towards achieving the goals of the paris again how much are we leveraging on that so what is our message what is the language that we use in speaking during our negotiation so it's it's, it's a big uh, uh, area of conversation that africa as a continent need to be read and we need to welcome the, the the just you know transition work program of the just transition pathway that we all are talking about so that the design of the compressive program can also help us to insist on our funding approach so that we'll be able to understand what do we need the funding for most of you mm. say our projects are not bankable mm. you know beyond international cooperation how do we make sure that we have solid content that can attract fund that can make them to see the need for them to inject funding into and we also need to look at uh, we need to we need to clarify how we we discuss the issue of transition in sectors wide because we have different sectors look at our national economic contribution in nigeria yeah. we have the several sectors mm. how are we looking at this so that it can be fair it can be gender responsive and it can be equitable for all so we need to look at all these things with you know very deep attention and we should not forget that there's also political realities uh. from different regions different nations and different continents and the way we see it from the point of just uh, uh, uh justice so for me i just see that uh every other thing all this thing we are talking about is possible but implementation our readiness our approach and how do we make sure that we have solid uh, opportunities on ground how do we re re refer to case studies that can make them to know that we need to you know bring back our land that have been taken away and we need to do more investments bring more investment opportunity for the interests of the people and the planet thank you uh -huh. Very interesting questions raised. If I knew these, you know, like the answers to these questions, I will most likely be like the happiest person because I almost like I like saved like the world, you know, to a great extent. Now, if we take a look at the amount of funding that has been spent on wars, just say in the last the last two to three years, um, over two trillion dollars, um, you know, from the Russia Ukraine to the Israel-Palestine or Hamas, to the ones here on the continent. We've spent a whole lot of money already on, um, I just mentioned those two because, you know, in terms of where the funding is coming from, you know, or the backing financially, um, I would say, um, uh, is also like from those who have made pledges, you know, and are supposed to be, you know, like meeting up with these pledges and the announcements. But then let's look at our involvement in the different COPs. Olumide, do you, do you want to make a comment on this? Different COPs are based on the money that we've got it for. Well, I think I've mentioned that I was able to have the opportunity to be at COP21. I mean, yes, that was Paris, during the Paris Agreement 2015. Mm -hmm. Let me say that if we go back and check all the articles, under the Paris Agreement, we should know by now that we've gotten a, a, a platform to ask, to request, and to demand. And that's what we have been doing. Then, 
flashback to 2019, they had the promise, like the way we are talking about, there is a sort of outcome for fossil fuel. Uh -huh. We have the same outcome on climate finance in 2019 uh -huh. in Spain, when they pledge 100 million dollars, right? Yearly. But, yod, where is the money? How many people have been able to assess this fund? Even the climate, climate, uh, global climate fund, the small grant program, the DEF, all this funding are part of the kind of mechanism, financial mechanism we're talking about. So how many of the countries, except some civil society organizations that have been able to assess some funding for local actions? But how many countries, when it comes to country specific, have been able to assess some certain amount of money to meet the adaptation program? To meet the energy issue, to solve the problem of mitigation. So, we need to. We, I don't think we've seen response to some set of commitments that we made. So, if we cannot see that, then how are we sure that the global stock take will take its right foot now? That the fossil fuel that they are telling us as a very big ambitious commitment in COP28, how are we sure by next year? We are not going to be speaking the same word, the same language to the same people at the same time and be seeking for the same funds for the same project. So, 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 I, I wouldn't want to cut you short, but I'm, yeah. putting, I'm posing your question back at you. I'm asking you the same question you asked while you were talking a while ago. Should we continue? Should African countries, delegates continue to attend COP? Yeah, yes. Yeah, in my own, in my own opinion, we should, but is it possible for us to limit it yearly? Why I'm saying this is because we, we, I will not say the scale of one to ten. We are getting four over ten in every commitment, every statement. Uh, the process of inclusion, how does it reflect the outcome of the negotiation in Paris at COP21, where where the the, the the African ministers requested the French presidency? to undertake consultation on the issue of vulnerability of Africa. This is another COP. What has changed? What has happened? So I think COP should, we should strategize the people that attend COP. We should strategize the people that negotiate for Africa. And we need to work closely with the African group of negotiators so that they can put another fight to have these issues, including as official agenda, item of COP28 in consultation under the COP28 presidency or looking at the further presidency that we need to have moving forward to have such reflection whether what we are even doing in COP every year is actually reflecting back to each country in the developing countries. So we need to review that. So for me, I think we should sit down and look at whether COP, for me, I think COP should not be, it's just like General Assembly in the United Nations environment program is every two two years so can we look at that as well so that we don't keep spending money that we're supposed to use to develop our country so that we don't continue to have wrong people at the wrong table negotiating for our, on our behalf so that's my point mm, so now you've mentioned the persons who attend there was a a bit of a, a news that went around um, when nigeria attended uh, something around over a thousand delegates from nigeria attending and then later on about uh, over 500 what caliber persons what kind of person should african countries be sending to uh, cop if at all we're attending cop um, like you 
um, suggested, you know, at intervals, not every year, but maybe, you know, once in two years, once in five years, whatever is decided. And do you have any comments on, you know, the news that broke about the number of persons that actually attended um, COP from Nigeria? Yeah, thank you very much. I was one of the people that was getting the back back and forth. Interesting. <laughs> but let me quickly make this known to you that uh, people don't understand the COP processes, eh? And every industry must look at climate change as a big issue. And that's where you see the entertainment industry. You see the, uh, 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 you know, even sports, everybody's using every kind of uh, avenue to propagate the gospel of climate change. And when you look at the delegation that Nigeria took to COP, people need to sit down and do the analysis. There are civil society organizations. There are government agencies, there are private sectors, there are youth groups that were all sponsored from different international local organizations. And the propaganda was that Nigeria sponsored 1,004 or 1,000 and this to come. That is a big lie. It is not, it can be, it can happen in any country. When you look at, go and do the analysis. When one person going to COP is spending like three to four million naira on accommodation and tickets, now multiply that with one thousand four or one thousand and fourteen or so. Is that the way to run an economy that is going to look for financing? So I'm not speaking for the government, but I'm just saying that because of my experience in attending COP, anybody can attend COP based on your area of implementation. A musician can attend COP. Ghana always bring one musician. I've forgotten his name. He's a reggae musician. This man sing and talk about climate action. We even have the faith-based organization in COP that they are speaking on how to use their congregation to push the environment conversation. And look at it again. A country of 250 million people. You are comparing it with the country that is 3 million. With 3 million Population take five uh, 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 hundred or one thousand to call. So when you are looking at a country like Nigeria, we have the private sector. I think the 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 the, the only thing that Nigerians need to ask is who are those individuals? What is their contribution? Are they negotiators or what are they doing on behalf of Nigeria? For civil society, we have been working on climate justice advocacy, speaking to different governments. Build, uh, bridging the intervention between the community and the government. And there are organizations that are being funded by international organizations, by different me financial mechanisms, and then they need to report and present the outcome of their programs and projects. These people were not sponsored by the government. But when you look at the portal of the UN, it's written that they are from Nigeria. Uh -huh. So, we need to understand the concept and the idea of COP processes and people should stop saying that when they jam with them, do you know I will end with this? All 1,040 of them were not the all the people that attended COP. Some of them had the accreditation on the their data uh, the, 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 the dashboard of UN, but unfortunately they couldn't get funded to go to COP at the end. Okay. How do you send how do you separate those people from the people that were counted? In club, and if you want to have the numbers of people that actually attend, 
then you need to go deeper by asking the UNF frequency because the moment you sign up to enter the conference premises, it has shown that you've shown up. But on the database of the one that they are sharing up under are the numbers of delegations that apply for COP28. Uh, okay. So we need that. Sorry, let me end. And government needs to also put a lot of orientation for people to understand the core processes. Thank you. Uh, okay. Other way, do you do you feel this way about the number of delegates sent by um, or the number of delegates, you know, um, from South Africa and the quality of the persons that were at COP twenty eight? Right. So I must say I don't have the numbers. And so a few disclaimers is that I don't have the numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was my first COP. Oh, okay. Um, so um, to, to take Olimide's point that uh, I, I, may, I may be one of the people who doesn't understand how the process really works. <laughs> but I, well, there, there are a few things, a few things I can say though. Uh-huh. Maybe two things specifically I can say though is that one is that for I think for this participation in COP to be meaningful, to me it seems it will be important on the one side to have an Africa voice. And I say this because there is a lot of bilateral agreements that are being made that are in a way cutting, undercutting any position that uh, Africa is taking as, as a unit. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, show me the money and, uh, and and so that tends to change the, the, the tune. So I think a stronger voice, a stronger African voice is really critical for, for that attendance to be, to be meaningful. In terms of the delegations of individual countries, this is a tricky one. So, in in the in the kinds of negotiations that I'm familiar with, that are mainly to do with biodiversity in the so the intergovernmental science policy platform biodiversity and mm-hmm. ecosystem services, typically what you see there, you see a an underrepresentation of African countries in the negotiations, <laughs> and a an overrepresentation of of other countries. In wow. The negotiating, the negotiating people are backed by groups of researchers, scientists that are providing them with the underlying science oh, wow. to back up their negotiations. In a lot of cases, uh, most of the African countries, at least in, in the platforms that I've been uh, involved in, have very few people attending and not enough people backing them with the relevant science from the continent's perspective. So in that sense, we end up being... Uh, in some ways, I think people end up agreeing to things that are maybe not particularly context relevant mm-hmm. uh, in the best interests of the continent. Mm-hmm. So I think both having this this unit of Africa as a as a unit represented represented there, and 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 over time also developing a a, a, a unit of scientists or researchers that are supporting this, uh, for example, the African group of negotiators having uh, a, uh, being backed by by groups of researchers that are really there for the science of the continent would be really, really critical going forward. Because I think in, 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 in a lot of cases, you look at some of these agreements and you think, I'm not sure if we should be agreeing to this or not the other thing. Mm. So this means you're also not against uh, boycotting, you know, future COP events. So if you ask me about whether Africa should participate, I would say absolutely if they're happening because we need to raise that the, the voices of the context in those meetings. If you ask me whether COP should be happening itself, I'd say I'm not so convinced. <laughs> but, but that's that's <laughs> that based on yeah, I, it might be unfair unfair or answer to this, uh, but I, I if, take, if I if I build on the experience of Olivia, I would say. If it has to, if it has to happen, it must happen less frequently. I'd say that. 
Okay. Okay, that's all. No, it's it's totally fine. We need diverse opinions, so you know we need we need to actually have you know diverse opinions and and thoughts. So what should happen next? We're going into a new year, and what's next? What should be done? What next steps should be taken? Um, should we be taken with the real way? And in terms of preserving Africa's biodiversity, how should we approach it in the coming year? Right. This is a this is a really critical uh, uh, question and a complex one, um, for several reasons. One is because because Africa has a, still a lot of a lot of unique biodiversity that's fairly intact compared to other places. Mm. So it's people want it because it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. We want to see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, people want it because they want to privatize it. People want it because they, there might be minerals under it. So there's a lot of competing interests. So if you look at the there's a there's a data set that somebody released uh, I think last year about the big development corridors of Africa, the mega development corridors mm-hmm. of Africa. And you can see a lot of the developments that are planned that are overlapping with a lot of this critical biodiversity itself. Um but the other side of, of, of our biodiversity that's that's both unique and also complex is that it is providing a lot of resources, basic material needs for people on the continent. So it's a source of jobs. Uh, for example, in, if I give an example in South Africa, uh, biodiversity-related jobs are as much as the number, as much as mining jobs, although mining is always propped as a, a sector that's providing jobs. We're getting the same amount of jobs for biodiversity. Example. So across the continent, people are, have livelihoods linked to biodiversity, have you know, energy needs that are supplied by nature because in most cases our, 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 our countries or our governments are not able to apply to, to supply the services we need. They should be, but they're not. In the meantime, people are relying on the local environment for a variety of resources that are important for their daily needs. So so, so for this reason, I think the motivation to protect biodiversity is not so difficult here. And it's not it's not about the whales as one of the <laughs> one of the panelists uh, mentioned. <laughs> it's it's really biodiversity is more than just the whales. It's about <laughs> jobs. It's about uh, medicines. It's about um, livelihoods. So so we, we don't have to convince people in 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 the rural area that it's important to have the local environment that they're using on a daily basis, as long as it's not presented as the way that it's putting fences around it in a way that uh, limits their access. So I think that's a different, the approach of putting fences around by the center and people that can't access it. I think that's the, in my opinion, that's the wrong approach and because it alienates people and people see it as something for other people and not for themselves, even if mm-hmm. it's something they're using already. So I think a critical aspect of biodiversity conservation on the continent will be critically to acknowledge the use of that biodiversity on the continent and to design strategies that allow for the sustainable use of of biodiversity. Mm. day, what's next for you in terms of the activism? What next steps are you taking? What's next? What next steps should we all be taking uh, in the new year as we approach the climate conversation from different areas? Thank you very much. I think uh, as an organization, civil society, Sarat Bukit, we need to intensify efforts in creating more awareness on the need for climate finance. We need to create more awareness on the outcome of the global stock take. 
we need to look at how can we raise more voices in strengthen adaptation actions is very very key and how do we make sure that the so-called fund is operationalized for loss and damage we need to increase that voice day in day out we need to start looking at is our energy transition is it just or we are just you know, playing around so we need to look at just energy transition as a very strong uh, you know uh, uh, issue to take further and uh, we are just talking about how do we grant african citizens their special needs how do we make all these circumstances start to change may not change immediately but how do we make our government accountable for their negotiation that we help the vulnerable people to be able to develop and have another, you know, uh, challenges that can help them to move further to promote innovative ideas and to build resilience. And that's what I think in the coming year, we should be focusing more on that so that all of us We'll be able to see an outcome that can reflect in the in people and on the planet. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a wonderful conversation with both of you. I really appreciate you taking out some time um, for this conversation. And to everyone who's listened, um, you can drop your comments and you can also um, reach out to or follow both Olumide and Oterewe. Olumide Idowo is a Nigerian climate change activist and uh, the founder of International Climate Change Development Initiative. It's an NGO. And Oterewe Salomane is a senior lecturer at the University of Pretoria Department of Agri-Economic Extension and Rural Development. Thank you, Olumide, for your time. Thank you very much. And... Thanks, Odiri, for your time as well. And I hope to see us moving further in building resilience across Africa. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah. Odiri, thank you very thank you, much. Anthony, thank you. Yeah, thanks to both of you. Yeah, I'm, 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 my last statement would be to say we, should, we need to, 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 to keep working hard to represent African voices in this global negotiations. And we need to involve the private sector in raising the funding that we need to get those efforts going. Thank you very much, Anthony. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to catch up on all the live shows right here on africatechradio.com.